So, so I see quite a few things that come to mind, people, but I'm also respectful that, uh, you know, though one might have a question, it's not necessarily always, um, I try to select the questions that be of general, general use, general relevance, yeah, and uh, so, you know, there's 30 of us, so also trying to select questions that I think everybody could, or more, most people could get something from. Um, also, there's some things that are a bit more like the Qigong questions, and I might talk about that, or just information, and I'll talk about that perhaps another time. So just put those for the moment. More like information about the style and so on. <clears throat> Some questions here on consciousness. Right, a few points here. First of all, one mm, question. If the mind is the sixth sense door, can it exist without the other five sense doors? Is awareness, consciousness separate from the sixth sense door? Can the mind exist without the other sense doors? Um, sight, sound, um, smell, touch, taste, exist. Mm. Okay, and then look at another one here. In the morning chanting, we use the term sense consciousness versus consciousness. What's the reason for this distinction? Do you please clarify what these concepts mean? Jitta, consciousness, heart, awareness, mind. Could you speak more about objectless consciousness and why the word consciousness is used here rather than awareness. I tend to think of awareness as having an object, even Nibbana, and consciousness being a kind of knowing that may happen with or without awareness. Is the awareness within objectless consciousness? Consciousness, I think. Arms falling off in Qigong.
So there's some, just some sometimes there are problems with language. So repeatedly through the suttas you see the word consciousness used and by and large it is described as uh, consciousness when there is a sense door and a sense object and consciousness. Those three come together and the experience is contact. So, and the uh, consciousness is described as dependently arisen on name and form. When there is name and form, there is consciousness. And sometimes it's said, when there's consciousness, there's name and form. So dependently arisen means, and the simile is of two sheaths of of reeds leaning on each other, consciousness and then name and form. Take one away, the other one falls down. Uh, consciousness is dependently arisen, dependently arisen on name and form. Form, rupa, is some kind of object experienced through a sense door. Nama is the, the naming or the various ways in which that is known or described. And all that, and consciousness is is bound up with that. In other words, for there to be consci- consciousness means that a form is experienced. The experience of it is called nama. It means there's a, uh, the act of experiencing it, which is intention, attention, and contact. Something goes out, holds it. Without that attention, there can't be an object. You can only have an object, something you would give it attention arises on. Otherwise, it doesn't happen, does it? You know, you're looking at direct experience. Um, so naming is both the very turning, you know, of attention that allows uh, one to be conscious of something. You know? And then as that attention takes hold of something, you know, forms an object, then the perceptions and feelings that arise that tell us what that object means to us, what it feel, what it is. So that's all bound up, isn't it? It's happening simultaneously. You look at like, if you try to get that experience. How can you attend? How can you be conscious of something without attending to it? How can you attend to it without being conscious of it? How can you be conscious of it and attend to it if it isn't there? <laughs> Now, the the five external senses, you know, there's definitely something there. We don't know what it is, but something is there. You know, there is a a tangible. Now, we may take that as pleasant or unpleasant, but there's something there. We may feel it as rough or smooth. You may taste something and it could be salty or delicious or bitter, but and that may be just your taste. Somebody else could find it neutral or whatever. But something's happening. Something's definitely activating that sense door. There's some kind of rupa form in your perception of it. Dependent arising consciousness. Now with the mind, aha, <laughs> is there something there or not? 
So the mind, can the mind exist without the other five sense doors? Yes, it can. Um, Mind consciousness can arise upon mind objects. Mental objects such as a thought, uh, uh, a mood or an emotion, um, a sense of subtle awareness, formless states, are they there or not? The uh, point being that if there is complete dispassion and seeing the impermanence of these, uh, of all mental, all objects, sight, sound, touches, tastes, and thoughts and emotions, through becoming dispassionate towards them, there is not the intention to turn towards them. There is not a grabbing of them. Now, with the external senses, still there is a functional, you know, for most most occasions, some functional apprehension of objects. With the mind, when the dispassion relinquishment occurs, the mind doesn't create any mind objects, doesn't create thought, a mood, a feeling, uh, an impression, a formless state, or a form state. There is no object. This is the breaking up of Nama Rupa, which means consciousness then is called the ceased consciousness, or the consciousness that has uh, gone to rest. It's not being activated. Objectless consciousness. So that could, obviously this is the mind consciousness. or consciousness uh, through the mental door. Now these six sense consciousnesses can be seen as six, or they can be seen as an experience that happens. So if we think of consciousness not so much as as a thing, but an activity of becoming conscious, becoming conscious of. Now this is a long way of putting it, but actually it gives a little more accurate Becoming so consciousness is an event. Becoming conscious of a sight, becoming conscious of a sound, becoming conscious of a taste, becoming conscious of something. Now, when the mind is not into, you know, the activity of becoming conscious of something, <laughs> because it's got had enough of becoming conscious of another thing that's going to rise and pass away, and so what? It uh, stops becoming conscious. <laughs> It stops the event flow. So then um, I'm trying to say, well, how can you be <clears throat> aware of... Now, what is awareness? And consciousness does not arise in Nibbana or the deathless. What can be known? Is Nibbana experienced? Is it known only after consciousness arises again? is known by what it is not. Yeah. Um. (laughs) 
something that has no nirvana has no, no not an object. It is a, it is a a knowable experience, the ceasing, and uh, most descriptions of it tend to veer between either the a subtle affirmation it's called the deathless element which gives you something to sort of hang on to to a subtle negation such as the cessation of of, of um, consciousness yeah. <laughs> and uh, occasionally said it is pointless to talk about this <laughs> Because it cannot be experienced in words, but it's uh, a domain. Uh, how do you say it? You know, um, where space and time cease, it, it is experienced. Uh, it is completely restful. Uh, it, it can't be measured in the way we normally measure sense conscious any kind of sense consciousness, and yet it can be experienced. Um, the heart at rest, the, perhaps the, the, the experience of releasing and then, you know, um, and the arising, but certainly that, that experience can be experienced, but not in terms of what we normally experience as consciousness, which is becoming conscious of an object. And yet, with the, uh, the sense of the objectless consciousness, is like a kind of uh, um, something where there's no perception, or the, the perceptions and feelings don't arise, there's no sense of memory or resonance or generic description. There's no way of labeling. And uh, it can be just that the experience of non-labeling also is uh, is known or experienced. Um, there's a phrase that the Arahant Sariputta, when he talked about Nibbana, he's saying, well, I noticed this perception, this sense of realization that Nibbana is the end of becoming. It arose in my mind. It passed away, like the sparks of a fire. The last perceptions that arose were Nibbana is the end of becoming, and then that went. (laughs) Why I think in the the, the chanting they use the term sense consciousness rather than consciousness was to try to... um, acknowledge there is this uh, reference to the consciousness that does not incline, does not take up a sense object, or the uh, stopped consciousness, the objectless consciousness. So they're saying, well, you know, sense consciousness is impermanent, but there's something else. I think that's the suggestion that that phrase refers to. Now, citta, 
heart, chitta consciousness, heart, awareness, mind. And these are, again, these are, there are three terms. So awareness really is only, is, is more like a, a, a usage. Um, it's not canonical in this sense. It's um, a usage that, that has become adapt, adopted to describe the knowing aspect of consciousness rather than the object. So we say conscious of sight. It's a way of talking about uh, emphasizing the feeling of the experience of being conscious of. So kind of removing or you can't exactly remove the sense object from that but you can through dispassion and detachment from that sense object you can also know that you're seeing. You can see and then you can be aware of seeing. That is when you're the viveka quality of detachment becomes enhanced then there's not the immediate plunging into the seen or the touched or the tasted there's a sense of acknowledgement of that so that the the awareness aspect of consciousness is being referred to so people find that useful in meditation circles to acknowledge that consciousness um, doesn't have to necessarily be always grasped it can be something more released about it in the canon you have three particular terms that are used um, which the citta, mano, and vijnana. So citta and mano interchangeably. The word mind can refer to both of those. Vijnana, consciousness. Now, um, mano refers really to. Uh, the particular sense door. So there's something called, just as there's eye consciousness, that's uh, chaku vijnana, um, ear consciousness, sota vijnana, then you have mind consciousness, mano vijnana. So it's really the description of the sense door of the mind. You could say it's the, the front entrance of the mind. It's the door that opens and uh, delineates an object that's that you know it delineates it it's the it's the mano is associated with mana sikara which means attention so mano is the function of mind that delineates an object gives attention to an object creates an object frames up an object the object forming mind. Chitta is never, there's no such thing as chitta vijnana, there's mano vijnana, there's no chitta vijnana. Chitta is the experience of the subject, the subject mind, the mind as subject. So mano is the mind that creates an object, chitta is the aspect of mind that creates or is to do with the experience of the subject. Me. Remember that one? (laughs) 
So it's the affective sense. So sometimes the word heart, people find more easy to do. Consciousness is, is, you could say, is the very fundamental apperception of something. We are conscious of, your eyes open, pop, you're conscious of seeing, you know. Once your eyes open, if your eyeballs are working, your eyes open, you're alive, you see. Now what you see comes after. (laughs) But there is seeing, and then almost instantly objects are seen. Yeah. But first of all, it's just seeing. So I was saying when we, when we, you know, morning meditation or any meditation period, you're sitting, your eyes closed, and then ringing the bell, and just well, don't jump. Just first of all, just really let the eyelids roll back a little, and get first of all a sense of seeing is arising, and then comes the walls and the people and the zafus. First of all, it's just an undifferentiated field of seeing. And that may be really very momentary before immediately the eye starts focusing on things. But just notice that the things, the quality of making things to things is a, is a secondary event, you could say, of which requires focus, yeah, which requires attention, manasikara. Yeah. First thing is just the eye sees. And then the attention says, oh, there's... You know, and we all know our attention gets very biased. We see things that, that got some action in them. We see things we dislike. We see things that remind us of something. We see things that we rather like seeing. We see things that aren't really the way they are. You know, we half imagine things. We see things with all kinds of perceptual layers and tones added to the scene. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but the first action or event is just conscious. Seeing is different from hearing. Right. Hearing is different from smelling. What do all those things have in common? Smelling. Tasting, hearing, seeing, what do they all have in common? That's consciousness. Something, you know, something happens, something comes into your presence. You're hit by something, and then, what's that? Right? Now, the very act, you say, the very first act of just being touched or contact, that's consciousness. Then in comes attention. You know, switches round on that. So, uh, the quality of attention, manasikara, comes from the mind, the citta. So, the citta is this subjective sense which may be seeking, may be anxious, may be uh, curious, may be blissful, and it, it. it's in there, you could say, and it, it says, frame me up something. Beam me up. <laughs> Give me a nice object to look at, you know. Give me a nice taste. 
find fault with something. <laughs> you know, so there's kind of these sometimes inchoate and create and slightly confused messages are coming out of jitta. And Mano says, okay, here we go. Boom. I don't like the way he looks. There we go. <laughs> Got it, you know. <laughs> Find fault with something. Or, oh, that's nice. Look at that, you know. So these, so that, that, that uh, so jitta then is, is the, is this sort of these urges and, and intuitions are arising. Um, sometimes very beautiful ones, you know. The eye of compassion opens. We listen with a kindly ear. You know, we have this sense of affection and warmth coming up. So things get framed up in that light. So jitta is the quality of, as the volitional sense, and it then immediately transfers its, its wishes or its volition to the, the attention faculty, which then turns, you know, any of the sense into any of the sense doors and says, Let's find something here. Hmm? So then you get citta, mano, vijnana. Now, the, so the, the mind or mano is the is the um, mind organ that feeds on or synchronizes with the other senses. Synchronizes with the external senses. It's operating in that term. So it just looks, you know, it's scanning. So the so Jitter is saying, well, I could do with something pleasing right now. So then sights, nothing here. Sounds, nothing here. Smells, nothing here. I'll think of something. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Boss says, give me some pleasant something. Can't see much around here. Smell, no. Taste, nothing to eat. No, nothing really interesting. See, I'll think of something. You know, it's because the boss has said, give me some pleasure. So he's a pleasure, no, no, nice, no, no, no. so we have a little fantasy. Hmm? <laughs> oh, something like that, you know. And if the boss is having a bad day, grumbling and grumpy, never, never treated properly, okay, the boss is saying, find something to feel irritated by them. Yeah, not enough of that, too much of that. Something making a noise, you know. So, <laughs> frames it up. You know, you want it, there you got it. So, Mano is very obedient to Chitta. And it just scans the other senses. And if you can't find anything in there, it says, well, I'll conjure up one myself, you know, to please the boss. So those 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 three kind of team up like that, and as we cultivate, you know, you're trying to have really understand citta, the effective sense. So and then really incline towards, you know, training citta, calming it reassuring it, saying, head for something skillful. Mm. You know, turn towards something that will make you feel more satisfied and pleased. So then frame, frame that up. 
you know, so then you attend to the quality of virtue, you attend to the quality of friendship, you attend to the qualities, you know, generally to to uh, to mental qualities, because why they are more uh, assuring is because they're not dependent upon external events. You can carry them with you. You carry your happiness with you. So this will give you a rough idea of how these, uh, what these terms refer to. Mano is never used in the context of liberation. It's not liberated. Jitta is liberated. Mano is just like a function. The real business is jitta. Jitta is the one that's giving the orders. That's the one that needs to be liberated. Uh, so jitta is described as uh, liberated uh, or unliberated. Um, it's described, could we say, as psyche? Another way of using it, jitta is seen as something that even passes from life to life. Um, so we could say it's the hot spot in, in consciousness. So the activated peace in our conscious experience is where jitta is, it's the activated piece. So it's associated with sankhara and uh, volition and karma. So it's the thing that's moving and stirring and activated and affected. And those programs and codes of how it's activated, why it's activated and the directions then are, these are the sankhara and these then are passed on from life to life and also from being to being we program each other so it's viral you know uh, but this also means that skillful sankaras can be passed on uh, meritorious and fortunate ones <coughs> so the subjective sense is also because we're all subjective we're all affected can work for our long-lasting welfare or for our suffering and then you really mano is just going to act as the servant of that what you know so then you what's called yoniso manasikara you what use your attention wisely to focus on things that are going to affect the jitta in a positive way a helpful way consciousness is not liberated it's described as that which needs to be understood and that which can cease. But it's not described as liberated. Yeah. These are terms and things you may, you may get some of it in what I'm saying. Um, it may, bits you may get and much of it has to be thoroughly experienced by yourself. Um, another nice uh, 
saying in the suttas is someone is asking Sariputta what's the wisdom and consciousness are they conjoined are they the same thing or are they separate things and he says well in some ways they're conjoined and in some ways they're separate and he says well the way they're conjoined is wherever there's consciousness there is wisdom This is how they are not separate. The very sense of consciousness, human consciousness, the ability to accurately receive an object, that's the basis of wisdom as discernment. We can know we're seeing. To know you're seeing is a, you know, that's what wisdom is. <laughs> this is the way they're, not, they're, they're conjoined and not disjoined. In what way are they separate? He says, well, wisdom is to be developed and consciousness has to be understood. So you have to become wiser and wiser about consciousness. You can't become more conscious of wisdom. <laughs> so anyway, just choose some of these things over. Let's get down to something else. Understand the need to abandon craving and clinging. And also someone here has commented that talking about the change of dependent origination at IMS, one teacher said the place to break the chain was between feeling and craving. When a feeling is pleasant arises, we do not grasp at it. When a feeling arises, it's unpleasant, we do not push it away. In a recent talk, he spoke about breaking the chain between craving and clinging. Are both these teachings accurate in your mind? So craving, clinging, desire. Isn't desire necessary for liberation? What's the difference between chanda and raga, desire? Okay. So, again, there's a language problem here. If you put the word desire away for a moment and just think of tanha as thirst, which is what it literally means. Raga, passion. So, ragas, as you know, are the Indian scales, music. You play a raga. Something that very moves you. you know, raga is passion, you know, that which moves you. Tanha is thirst, that sense of need. And chanda means a sense of uh, motivation. Or even interest or aspiration. And this, the, the brief answer is that uh, we need to develop chanda, interest and motivation to, in order to free ourselves from tanha, from craving. Chanda is something that you can steer, you can take interest, you can turn your attention, take an interest in something, you can, when you feel faith aroused in a practice, in meditation or in Dhamma, your Chanda is, arises, I want more of that, I want to do more of that, I want to have more of that. Now it may be tainted, um, but essentially, chanda means I'm going to do something 
to, to bring around my welfare. I'm motivated, I'm inspired. Tanha means I want somebody to give it to me. <laughs> you know, or not somebody, I want it to happen to me. You know, so it's a pretty a pulling in, like an empty, seems like an empty thirst that needs to be poured. Something needs to be poured into me. Chanda is like something you you act upon, you move out to to generate something. Tanha is essentially the quality of wanting to pull things in. The two can be can be mixed up and blurred, that is we have a bit of both, we have chanda with the feeling of I do enough of this, I'll get the goods coming back to me. A bit of tanha coming in at the end of it. So they do they do in, intermingle. But uh, as you practice more and more you begin to see well even that you know justifiable uh, craving for a, what about a nice blissful state what about some happy times then where's my payoff coming you know that is miserable better to just do it and not even think about you know getting something out of it then it, you, you do get something out of it you get a sense of purity <laughs> So the more that you can gradually see the pain of craving, and really we just learn through pain. It's a pretty simple thing. You know, we're not that kind of noble, really. It's just when it hurts long enough, you stop doing it. <laughs> and you see that you can stop doing it. Then you stop doing it. <laughs> so we take an interest in our craving if you like, you know, get interested in the experience of craving. You see, look, here we go again. You know, you're going to go out, aren't you? Now you're going to crave like crazy. Okay, now just wait. For a little while later, you're going to be sobbing and wailing and miserable again. Okay, now get this. Just notice how it happens. <laughs> Eventually, it's like having a good grand grandparent. Go ahead, crave, you know, just see what you get. You know, you can you come crying to me again. <laughs> Then she said, look, you could do it without that, you know. You could just, you could do it without that and you'd be all right, you know. Just remember, you know, you could just, you could just go and have your tea and just drink the tea and be grateful. And that'd be a lot better for you, you know. But find out. And you see that kind of, the Chandra always sets up so much disappointment and ingratitude and discontent. You know, do I have to go through this again? And so you start to. Now, how's that? Okay, there's one very good teaching between feeling, you get the feeling, craving arises. Could you just feel the feeling and not get that craving for it? This is possible. It's got to be pretty. Swift, quick on your feet, I think, <laughs> to do that, to get in there, but it's possible. Um, and that would be great. Yeah. Sometimes it just catches you, you know, yeah, the feeling and boom, you know, it, you're on it. So then, if, that's, if the horse is out of the stable, then how, what do you do then? Well, then you just don't cling to it. So if you can, if you don't get it at the feeling level, you get it 
craving where cla- craving becomes instead of oh there's craving oh there it is now okay we know this one okay now let's just go back to what that's doing to me let go of the sense object feel that sense of craving is this pleasant no it's not pleasant come back and you know horse gets back in the stable <laughs> if it doesn't run out that's great but if it's already out down the track then how are you going to get it back well you use by stopping clinging to it which means instead of uh, the object as you're experiencing craving then you still keep focusing that object still keep holding the object you can, you know, then that's going to keep dragging you down the track, isn't it? But if you experience that, you know what craving feels like, surely. Yeah. Once you get, you get a feeling for that, here we go again. Here comes a crave coming up and it's out. Then let go of that thing quick. <laughs> get your hand off it, you know. And that's because you have chanda. You're motivated, you're interested in how to stop suffering. And so you can apply yourself to that experience of you know, the craving, you see something in a magazine, looks really nice and you, it lights you up, and you get that glow, you know, whoa, watch it, warning signal, you know, and <laughs> free this month's special offer, warning signal. <laughs> and so rather than, rather than, it's already out, you know, things already, horses out. So don't cling to, don't cling to that thing. And don't cling to the sense of I am somebody who's stuck miserably in in mining cravings, nothing I can do about it. I'm a helpless addict, which is another thing that happens, you know. I can't stop this. Well that's that's clinging. Once you create an I am out of it, you then you say, No, you can stop it. Or it can stop. And it stops by removing the object, push that object away. Remember you can do this, you know. It's not like for the rest of my life I will never crave, no. It just means for the next second, push that away. Come back to the, the feeling, here and now. Breathe out, you're all right. Take a little time, a little bit of time. Turn your mind towards something helpful. May I be well, may I be well. Breathing in, breathing out. Then you've, thing is quietened down again. So, these are just strategies and approaches to wear down the reflex of craving. Now, whichever, wherever you get it, that's, that's good. If you can get it right where feeling arises, great. If it's already out and running, get it before it gets into upadana. <coughs> So let's just put that one down. There's a couple time and space. Frequently feel there's not enough time to get or have what I want. Did you bring up the discussion of no such thing as time, only space? How freeing if I could, I could deeply grok this. Uh, if, con- if concepts like time and space require a subject-object ob- relationship and consciousness does not arise in Nibbana, well, there we back to that again. But 
Nibbana is outside, is the ceasing of time and space. There is no time, there's no space, there's no spatial dimension. These are very difficult to describe if, if you haven't touched that. But say, you know, there is the sense of space means your awareness is spread. It's spread out. Time means your awareness is pushed forwards. Right? Pushed forwards. Or pushed back. It's a, it's a direction forwards or sometimes backwards. It's that sense, yeah. So, and there's a pressure there, isn't there? There's a pressure that pushes it. When we say we don't have much time, you, what does that feel like? I don't have much time. I don't have much time. There's pressure. There is something pushing. I don't have much time. I don't have much time. Pressure pushing you. It's pushing. Hurry up. Get going quicker. So that's awareness is pushed. Consciousness is being pushed forwards. These are not, this is not canonical. I'm just trying to talk about direct experience. These are not explained in the canon. But it's useful because we are so time bound. I don't think in, in the time of the Buddha they were running to work, at, you know, to get the eight o'clock train or whatever it is. <laughs> So I think time was such a big deal, really. Um, but for us, it's an enormous uh, internalized psychological pressure uh, to to become. So in 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 the canon, it's described. It's called becoming. The thing we have to become something. There's a time sense there, and becoming is suffering. It says with the ceasing of becoming is the ceasing of suffering. Now, so we very powerfully become our becoming experience as a t- temporal quality. I will be. I have not been yet. When will I be? When will I get to? I haven't got to yet. How much time have I got to get to? Hmm? I've been three years doing it, 20 years, 25 years doing this. When will I get to? There it is. What does that feel like? Suffering. <laughs> So this is why we want to stop it. Now, you know, ideally, it's just, you know, nibbana it all, but because uh, that uh, requires some some uh, graduated process, then I say refer to the spatial element of awareness, which again is not difficult. It is a little bit, you know, it's not a habitual mode, but we can do that without have to be an arahant to get there. Yeah? And so what it says, instead of your awareness being pushed forward, you, you, you deliberately stretch it wide, wider, more, so we say, more accommodating. This is something we can do. You know, we can focus on a particular point, you know, and we can look at that clock, or you can look at the, the floor, or we can look at everything between these two people or you could even widen to include the whole hall visually you can do that widening of your visual consciousness in your mind you can get down to one particular point you you know 
of a person, or you can widen it to include the whole span of that person, all you know about them. The wider it gets, the less differentiation there is. So it's, it's more peaceful, it's calmer. Now notice when you have problems with people, surely not. What happens? You focus on one particular feature that drives you nuts. And that person, all you see about them, all you know about them is that one feature. Yeah. The way he eats his food drives me nuts. When I think of him, I think about the way he eats his food. Now your attention has got really closed. So then if you widen it, you think, so he eats his food, yeah, he puts his shoes on, that's not a problem. He opens doors, it's not a problem. He goes to sleep, that's fine. He goes to the bathroom, that's totally okay with me. Um, he has happiness, he dances, he plays guitar, he likes walking in the country, he sickens, he experiences sorrow, joy, aspiration, he dies. Eventually, he's just like me. <laughs> you know, so gradually the differentiations, the more you know about someone, the less you know about them. You know, because you can't, you don't pick on particular details. You see, there's the human. There's the human again. I mean, there's some little picky bits and pieces if you want to come, but really there's another human, sensitive, you know, with failings and, and clarity and so forth, and another human. So you're widening that way. And then you get less uh, differentiation. So that can be helpful for these, because the mind, when it's compressed into the time frame, also gets very critical. The narrower it gets, the, the more critical it gets. So it has to be handled carefully. You know, the widening is a way to just loosen, loosen. And in that, we feel the relief that instead of conceiving our practice to be a movement forward in time, where there's always a sense of, you know, on your toes, and how that triggers particular unskillful energies in us. And I'm not saying that there's not something better for us that can happen in the future, you know. But I'm saying that what that suggestion does to us, it gets us into on our toes pushing forward mode. And then we continually push, push the results further ahead, you know. It's like what you experience is your own pushing towards the future. There's never any feeling of appreciation in that. So, now clearly, if we cultivate correctly, this present moment will continue to unfold in terms of causes and conditions, and as we continue to practice very much in the present, causes and conditions, beneficial causes and conditions will arise, and, you know, there will be fruitfulness for us, but we still remain in the present, with our understanding the present is bound to change. So yes, there is a time element, but I'm not pushing it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not pushing forward into it. I'm resisting that. And if you widen your awareness, you begin to, instead of just getting mesmerized by goal orientation, by 
particular things you've got to have and things you can't stand and things you've got to make get going, you come and you widen your experience. Yeah, there's suffering. There's there's also this other bit. There's generosity and there's tender-heartedness. You widen the, the, your awareness of the potentials of your chitta. You know, the, all this skillful karma that we have, all the good fruits, that comes through widening into the quality of the present moment. Now, this is skillful. You know, whether you, whether you use the metaphors of, it's just a metaphor and, a, and an action, but certainly we are called upon to note the multiplicity of causal factors that can come into play in this present moment. Yeah. And by and large, there are more skillful factors that each and every one of us has than unskillful ones. That's just the sheer statistics of it. <laughs> but we can ignore them. We can just get this narrow focus. You don't deeply appreciate your sense of conscience and concern, your sense of morality, your sense of tenderness towards other beings, hmm? your sense of insp- aspiration and inspiration, hmm? your sense of commitment and resolution, your ability to be mindful. You know, and these are things that as you loosen that forward drive, what's really here for me? You know, what's really here? And you widen, you get a chance perhaps of tuning into more fruitful um, focuses of attention and uh, indrias and, you know, the, the good stuff. So it's, it's helpful in that respect. Moving from so that's moving from time, the time into space, into what's the fullness of the space that I'm with now, that I am now, that my awareness is in now. What's in that? You get a sense of relief from the pressure to go forward, relief from dragging backwards, and you come into balance of being here. And in that, you can explore what really is here, the fullness of it. And you can experience the arising of time, that push, oh, there's the push, there's the pressure again. Here it comes again, now what do you do with that? You pause, you check, what's really happening? Behind this sense of five years, 10 years, another retreat, so what's really being felt? Hunger disappointment, frustration. Okay, now can you stay there with that and just widen your awareness of that? Get a bit more space around that, those qualities in the heart. Soften, widen, and you can can release. Now that's a little, a small upaya, skillful means that Hopefully, I offer us something that can be for your benefit. If it's not, don't bother with it. I think I'll try one more because I've been keeping here for an hour so far.
How does it take? You said it could take years to allow the breath. Years. <laughs> it could take years, lifetimes, to allow the breath as energy to be the object of meditation. Oh no. Getting out of the way or trying to make it perfect or make it a certain way. What strategies do you recommend in cultivating the ground for this to happen? How does it relate to hovering with hovering with the spaces in between the in and out breath, which seems volitional? Yeah, well. Hmm. So, you know, why um, breathing or breathing is such a, a sort of, you know, a main thread in meditation practice and in, we look at the word meditation in, in cultivating your, your interior, you know, in cultivating spirit. Um, you know, the breath of God moves on the waters. Heavens, it goes right through all the traditions. Pranayama, you know, t- breath of life. Chi, Tao, so forth. And um, in the uh, generally in the Asian traditions, then Pana, Prana, right? So Pana is just the Pali for the Sanskrit word Prana. And anybody who's done any kind of looked into yoga, recognized these things, well, you know, the air breath is just the kind of front door, really. It's just the outer aspect of it. And you get into it, and you come into that door, you, you sense these energies that move through the system. And they're, they're, those energies are the ones that, that make why you breathe. Because you're not doing it, the energies do it. They do it automatically. Right? So there's a particular... Um, energy, intelligence, and the two are conjoined. Uh, energy is an intelligence. It means it, it, it kind of fluctuates in accordance with causes and conditions. Right? So it's intelligent energy. It's not blind like electricity. It's, it's intelligent energy. It, it senses now's the time to breathe in, now's the time to breathe out. So that's going. And in, so in Indian, that's called prana or pana. Uh, in Chinese, it's qi. Um, so it's it's this, you know, the 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 energy that gets you breathing, and gets your breath rate to increase, or to slow down. Yeah, and if you're activated, it gets it happening more more. If you're excited, it. If you're angry, it changes. If you're frightened, it changes. If you're running, it changes. And so it's. Um, operating. It operates in accordance with physical and sensory stimulation. It also operates in terms primarily uh, you know, of emotional stimulation. So it's often associated with well, emotional, mental experiences such as calm or panic, the opposite extremes. We panic, our breathing is very rattled, isn't it? Jittery. Um, you have an asthma attack, the experience of that kind of breath immediately registers as panic. Yeah. So it could be that the very restriction in breathing 
generates the emotion panic or the emotion panic generates the restriction in breathing. So they're they're interdependent. The breathing and the emotions are very strongly, immediately connected. They're both quite instinctive. You don't say, now let me panic. You just, he just does it. Let me not panic. You know, you can't, it just operate, operates instinctively. So this is this very primary you know, reflex energy that's there. Uh, so it's right at the basis of what the mind, the effective mind, the chitta, is affected by. So it's the why it's so important to cultivate it because the sense is that how are you going to turn this chitta around? How are you going to turn it around from being anxious and, you know, miserable? You can't do it by itself. You can't say, let me stop being anxious. It's not going to happen. But if you hold a steady, calm, loving breath next to it, it's going to pick up that message. So that's the basic, you know, that's the condensed rationale for mindfulness of breathing, essentially. Um, uh, Why is it difficult Uh, It could take years to allow the breath energy to be the object of meditation. Primarily because um, we're so mistrustful of of more instinctive, less controlled situations in in ourselves and in the world around us. We're very mistrustful of losing control. Losing control, and I say that word, we think, I'm going to go crazy if I lose control. I'll go berserk. You know, all my stuff will come bursting out. I'll start shouting at people and lose it completely, lose control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, because of that, we've got this sort of control system there that overrides everything. We tend to override. And if we start to loosen up some of that, you know, it, it doesn't like it. It tries to hold on, and it will tend to hold on to the breathing. And then when we get a teaching which is saying mindfulness of breathing is, is too de- developed and cultivated, then in that comes big time. You know? So let's get going on mindfulness of breathing. Let's do it. Let's get going on it. Let's work it out and get there where I want to need to go. Um, so we operate through the control system. And the control system isn't always that wise. Sometimes it's just neurotic, frankly, and fearful, for good enough reasons. Mm. But there it is. So, you know, so well, actually, let's get into a situation where I do feel safe enough. I am bounded by precepts. There are, you know, irritating, but harmless people around (laughs) is it possible to let go a little bit (laughs) and so it takes time to do that and and even when we consciously want to do it sometimes when you you loosen up it kind of kicks back in again the control system so it can take a while to really get down to trusting breathing to happen by itself without something fiddling, feeling it's got to do it. 
That's why it takes time. And then, of course, our sense of our, our attention is used to when we bring up a word like breathing, we used to, we think, well, that means that stuff pouring in and out of my nose. That's what we, so that's what we look for. Energy, what's that? Energy is running around. Energy is something I do. You know, it's about act, action. So we don't really know or frame up the sense of vitality. You know, because you don't do vitality, it happens. So it's a sense of not really having a, a, such a frame of reference. You know, it takes a little bit of time to get that. When you say, look at your breath energy, use another word, look at your vitality. The vitality, the vitalization that occurs as you breathe in and out. Um, the point I was making about the endings of the, the breathing is that when the air flow is terminates or comes to its conclusion, then if you stay in that frame and the air flow stops and the muscular movement stops, then what you're experiencing in that frame is the other bit of the breath, <coughs> the energy. Now all the three are running together because one's attuned to the coarser stuff, that's what you notice. So, but when the coarser stuff stops, at the end of an in-breath, you feel a slightly lightened, lifting, vitalized, vibrant quality. Hmm? Does anybody else feel this or is it just me? <laughs> Perhaps I'm just completely deluded, you know. <laughs> but I, I kind of like it. <laughs> Because I don't have to do anything, um, you know, and I like that, and I just feel more and more how nice it is to not have to, you know, control and make and get, you know, get good at something. How pleasant it is if something just happens by itself. That it, that itself is actually r rather gently pleasing, and as it, the, the mind listens to that, experiences a sense of gentle, pleasing. And that really helps me to kick the habits of the coarser sense pleasures because I get something that makes me more gentle and, and a gentle pleasure rather than a, you know, a coarse sense pleasure. And it's saying, you know, being gentle is actually not weak and feeble, but really, you know, turning you on to some powerful stuff. Because the more you attune to it, the brighter your mind gets and the stronger your mind gets. Not through making it strong, it just bucks up <laughs> by itself. And as you tune into that, and as you tune into that, it, the calming effect means your breath, respiration rate drops the muscular sensations calm, so the outer forms of the breath tend to subside, and what you're left with is this bright, strong, but gentle 
energy. And, uh, you know, you've got something that you can, you can rest in. So what is needed to cultivate that, I think, is using the, the, you know, the gratis pieces, which is the beginnings, endings of the breath, getting a posture, getting a right posture so you can, you can so make it it's almost like a yoga, hatha yoga thing, first of all, how to sit. You know? So you're just looking really at the physicality of it so that the weight comes off your diaphragm because yeah, that's going to press your breathing down. So your chest can be open, because if your chest is compressed, it's not going to flow properly. If your throat is open and your jaw is relaxed, the breath, the breath energy is going to travel more fruitfully. And the more you can keep tuning in and just gently adjusting these places, um, you know, your breath energy is going to become very complete and full. And the associations of effort, you know, and trying to make it work, begin to recede. Now you notice that, um, you may notice that breathing, when it becomes difficult, is often associated with either constriction in your diaphragm, or a constriction in your chest, or a constriction in your jaw, in your throat jaw area. Because these are the places where we tend to either physically you know, our posture is such that it, it compresses these through sitting in chairs and slumping around, your chest caves in. When you're sitting in a chair, your back slides back and you sit, you wedge yourself on top of your belly. You know, <laughs> you know if, you, if, you, if, you're out, if your lower back curves backwards, what's your ribs going to rest on? You know, this wadge of flesh. That's what it's going to rest on. If your back's like that, all this weight of your torso is going to rest on, on your belly, isn't it? And in between the two is the diaphragm. So how's that diaphragm going to move? If you've got it pressing down, it's not going to move. It's, it's locked. Uh, so you don't get the free flow. And the locking of the diaphragm is associated with um, holding on. With uh, power and fear and holding on. Now we may not experience be in that state, but if you sit there in that state, you will you'll get that mind. If you sit there in that physical state, that's a support for those mind mental conditions to arise. Just sitting in that state and tuning into it, you feel compressed, weighed down. Mm-hmm. And you feel some, you know, and then it, the frustration comes up. So you, there's a lot of struggle around that. <clears throat> so just getting the right posture is worth working on. Just get the weight off your belly, onto your hips, through the back. To get your chest to open, and the, the real uh, essence of this is in the using the spine carefully, respectfully, so that the weight of the body can transfer down the spine into the ground. Great idea. Planet Earth can take the weight. 
why not? The emotional sense of may I be well, may I be at ease, people around, nobody's bothering me. So letting your throat, your emotional centers relax. Now all that is, is very supportive for mindfulness of breathing. So if you, and if you, you know, you, you really got to keep checking in with that, the home basis. If it's going, if mindfulness of breathing is difficult, you've probably not got the basis there yet. So you're going to keep going back to the base very patiently, very carefully. Keep going back to the base, establish the ground so that it can happen freely. And then you can do the bit your controlling mind can be usefully attuned to is just take pay attention. Just keep lifting your attention onto that. So a little bit of determination, just the determination to lift your attention and place it onto it and to keep checking in with your body. So there's something voluntary and determined when I mean determined, I mean definable, that you do. But it really is just the attending, care, the quality of careful attention to a process that by itself is free of mental volition. Free of mental volition. And I think we were talk, referring to that sutta on the nutriments. Mental volition is a food, um, and it's uh, a food like a drug, and it can drag you to the charcoal pit. <laughs> so, but you know, we have it. We have that mental volition. So we say, let's not let's use it carefully, just to be attentive and skillful and tuning in that's enough there's plenty there's plenty and you've got this other thing you can you know receive what a blessing what a gift another upaya i like to to just conjure reflect you know if you oh another day of breathing in and out oh god you know Breathing in and out. We've seen one, you've seen them all. You know, what's the thing about breathing in and out? <laughs> so our mind gets stale and bored. So you just play with it. What if you just, you know, had somebody choking you and you couldn't breathe, or you're in a smoke filled room and you couldn't breathe, you know, and suddenly the air cleared and they let go of your throat? Wouldn't that in breath be delightful? <sighs> oh, I can breathe, you know. What about if you're struggling for breath or asthma or gasping or, you know, wouldn't breathing in just be so sweet? Try to breathe in as if you've just been given one, one free breath. <laughs> wouldn't it be sweet? See how the mental attitude really affects it. Breathing out, how cleansing that can be. Just to be able to release. Imagine you've just been working all day and you come in 
working outside in the rain and cold and you come in oh, breathing out wouldn't that be a relief <laughs> so you know how you frame it up uh, these are skills you can you can develop why of course uh, saying mindfulness of death helps so this is your last breath <laughs> this is your last one live it live it fully seems an appropriate place to pause for the evening thank you <laughs>